Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Michael Johnston, and this is New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And today I have Daniel Silver and Terry Clark with me to discuss their book, Seascapes, How Qualities of Place Shape Social Life, published by University of Chicago Press. Daniel Silver is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. His research area is on social theory, cities, culture, and cultural policy. He's the co-editor of the Politics of Urban Cultural Policy and author of Seascapes, How Qualities of Place Shape Social Life, the book that we'll be discussing today. Professor Silver was the recipient of the 2013 Theory Prize. He received an honorable mention for the 2015 Junior Theorist Award, both from the American Sociological Association Theory Section. He co-edits Theory, the newsletter of the International Sociological Association Research Committee on Sociological Theory, and his current research examines the role of arts and culture in city politics, economics, and residential patterns, the enduring politic orders of cities, the use of diagrams, and figures in social research, and international variations in how sociological theory is taught. Terry Clark is a professor of sociology at University of Chicago. He is interested in using decision-making theory to approach urban politics and other social phenomena. He is the international coordinator of the Fiscal Austerity and Urban Innovation Project, which is surveying city officials across the United States and in 35 other countries. All right. Excellent. And thank you uh, again uh, to both of you for joining me today for this podcast. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add to your biography? No, that that covered it. Sure, that's fine. Excellent. All right. So this book, Seascapes, uh, How Qualities of Place Shape Social Life, um, one of the major themes of this book is really how to uh, conduct research on places. And place is not space. Is that correct? It, oh, you're, it's you're, space and, and a lot more. Yes. <laughs> but I'm sure we'll elaborate that as we go along. Excellent. So um, to start off then, how did you, um, how did this research manifest itself and, and lead you to uh, conduct research on, on placemaking and on scene, different scenes? Uh, maybe I'll start that one off, Terry, and then you can uh, sure. jump in as, uh, as needed. I mean, so it, it goes back, I think, well, now a couple of decades, probably starting uh, on a path that Terry laid out before I jumped onto it. Um, Terry had been studying cities and communities and the way that they've been changing for many years. And, um, uh, he, he edited a book that appeared, I think it was 2003. Terry, is that right? City as an entertainment machine, um, 2002 or 2003. And that is an important book. And one of the most cited chapters in that book is called Amenities Drive Urban Growth or Urban Development, I think. And that was an important chapter because it was probably the first place that anybody had tried to you know, build up a big national database of uh, amenities, you know, uh, that would 
sort of define the character of different places. It, it was done at the level of counties, but it gave a, a, a good read on sort of how the qualities that those amenities would represent would differ across many places. And in that chapter, I, Terry and his collaborators showed that depending on the mix of amenities, if it's a, emphasizing natural qualities or the built environment and other various features, you'd see population changes. And building on that, uh, there was a research project going on at University of Chicago. Um, Terry was the co-leader of it along uh, at, at, at the Cultural Policy Center there with um, a professor of English named Larry Rothfield, who was the um, director of that center. And that was called the Cultural Amenities Project. And it was sort of extending those ideas in new directions. And uh, I uh, sort of wandered onto that project semi-randomly one day as a research assistant. And uh, we started continuing those ideas uh, there. And that, that project was trying to ingrain that would be able to uh, make much finer distinctions among the various amenities. Um, so, you know, to be able to have, you know, many different types of restaurants or many different types of churches, uh, many different types of businesses. So we could really, you know, pinpoint the, 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 the style of life that they were revealing about places and to have it at, as, at a lower level of geography too, to be able to you know, drill down deeper. And uh, as that project was developing, well, one thing I should say as well, so I stumbled onto that project not from sociology, which is, I think, part of the the, the background to the this research and, and why it uh, has some of the so, somewhat unusual features that it does. Um, I was doing a PhD in something called the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, which is a kind of wide-ranging, non-disciplinary program. And I was studying uh, things that ranging from philosophy to literature to, to social theory. And... So that was an aesthetic theory. So that was sort of the, the background to where I was coming from. I was just doing sort of everyday research and learning how to do that kind of research on that project. And uh, at some point, uh, we were you know, starting to look at all of this data that we had collected and trying to think about how to make sense out of it. And when you have, as we started to at the time, have you know, hundreds and hundreds of different categories of items at a very fine grain level, it gets very difficult to try to say what it all means. And there's a sort of temptation to try to pull out one item. You know, we're going to look at art galleries or we're going to look at juice bars or we're going to look at operas uh, and uh, and study that. And that's what most of the researchers working in a similar area, in similar areas have been doing. Uh, but when you do that, you tend to at the same time sort of. Uh, implicitly assume that that one thing is revealing something else about the entire uh, holistic quality of uh, it, of that place in which it in which that one thing is embedded, and so we wanted to avoid that kind of atomistic approach and use the, the all the information there that we had collected to say something about the sort of overall style of life or, or vision of life that was embedded uh, in those places and expressed in all of the activities. Uh, associated with the various amenities that we had information about. And to try to uh, sort of give a covering concept for all of that, one day I remember 
uh, Terry came in into the room and that I was sitting in. And he said, oh, you know, we, we really like this idea of scene. I think that really kind of captures, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, holistic quality that we're trying to uh, capture. Uh, you, you know, you're coming over from the Committee on Social Thought. Uh, you know, you've been reading literature and philosophy and, and so on. Let's come up with a theory of all of that and so find some way to make sense out of it. So we went off and we sort of, you know, put our heads together for a while. And and uh, and out of that came this sort of our elaboration of, of this concept of scene as a way of trying to sort of make sense out of the multidimensional but holistic uh, meaning of, uh, of places. And then we went from there and built theory and various methods uh, upon that. That, that, that sounds terrific as, uh, as general background. I'll mention one or two more general things which, which may have sensitized us both to these, these themes. Uh, I lived in Paris for five years. I did a PhD on the French University. I taught at the Sorbonne twice. Before that, I went to art school, and that sensitized me to sort of looking at streets or people or rooms and being sensitive to colors and shapes and how they all fit together or not in a, in the sense in a se- in the sense of how they aesthetically have a coherence that they may not in terms of finance in terms of temperature in terms of other other analytical dimensions um, second uh, i i recently read a book about the the global contributions of chicago to international culture and one was uh, one was Mies van der Rohe's architecture. The other was Hugh Hefner's uh, uh, empire. And we were meeting. We, the Cultural Policy Center was having a meeting in the personal home of what was formerly Hugh Hefner, with including the, the, all the top staff, students and others. Uh, and, and we talked for, for about half an hour, I'd say at least half an hour, more like an hour, about the idea of a scene. Uh, and just after that, so I went back that night and jotted down about 15, 15 types of scenes, such as Disney Heaven or um, Black is Beautiful. But then I said to myself, these are these are too descriptive and they're too American. We want a general theory of scenes. Dan is reading all this general philosophy, and and Dan, and, and that is Dan's sensitivity to the aesthetics and the philosophical. Markham is is very different from most sociologists, and I'm I was moving into this myself, but I had not written about it as a qua sociologist before. So together we really heightened that kind of sensitivity to the street, and we're now getting more of this um, from the art side. That is, many artists today say beauty is no longer one of their criteria. They're more concerned with social context, with political impacts, with citizen mobilization, themes which used to be sociologists. But, but my point is the world is changing very, very fast. And, and this, the traditional sociological categories have often said race, class, gender, and national origin explain less than 25% of most of the variation in what's, what, what sociologists and social scientists and people care about. Going to church, where you shop, how much you spend on this or that, how much you earn, what educational level you have, and so forth. And so we need new, some new concepts that capture the ways in which the world is changing around us, especially places, say, like China, changing faster but more explicitly and visibly. They're moving from a production ex- export um, 
economy to a consumption domestic uh, economy where they 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 no longer are rural peasant hard workers shipping stuff to to the U.S. They are they're they're moving to the bigger cities there and they're 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 deeply transforming their whole economy lifestyle and and more. So thinking globally with China as one visible example, and we've now had about 85 Chinese visitors. We have five teams we're working with inside China. We had a conference in Beijing, and the Seenscapes book is being translated, published. It has been translated. It'll be out about this month in Chinese. Dan was in Beijing for the for the conference, um, and uh, so to, to to match with those concerns, the fifteen dimensions which Dan played a lead role in coming up with, generalizing from my initial set. Um, had a more abstract character, and and we'll I'm sure we'll talk about as those go along. But that that that's I'd say that those are a couple of elements of the background. And the 15 dimensions, I think you were pulling from um, Goffman, if I remember correctly, as well as uh, Weber, and and they had. Could you talk a little bit more about these 15 uh, components that are used to understand any given scene? Because I I remember it um, specifically. It was it was pinpointing that. Uh, in understanding a scene, it doesn't just have to be qualitative. It can be quantified by using mm-hmm. these 15 uh, factors. Yeah, sure. I mean, the it's it's not necessarily first about qualitative, quantitative. There's a sort of, you know, pr- I think a prior step before that. And I mean, the background, again, is we, we want to is our approach the world uh, as a scene. Now, what does that mean? Uh, one way to think about it is imagine that you're you know, walking around a, a city and you see a kind of streetscape or a community or whatever. And how, how would you approach that if you were a poet, if you were trying to you know, turn it into lyric or if you were a filmmaker trying to make it into a scene in your film or if you're a musician turning it into a song or a painter painting it? What you do is you gather those elements up that you observe, the people, the space, the buildings, the color, the kind of things Terry was talking about into something that fits together and reveals something about the vision of life that's that's embedded in all of that. And that so that's what we're trying to you know have a theory, a social science theory that would allow us to pinpoint. And, and then so we're starting from that sort of a, a ambition. Uh, we want to capture the qualities of the place. That's our subtitle. Um, then to do that, we turn to myriad sources from the history of uh, philosophy, social theory, uh, aesthetics, literature, uh, journalism, uh, ethnography, other sources, people engaged in this sort of effort to interpret the, the meaning of, 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 of social life that goes on in cities and communities. So drawing from those sources, we try to pull them together into a, a, a relatively simple, but not, uh, not too simple, uh, comp set of dimensions, which can help you to pinpoint what those what the meaning of a, of, of, of a place is as it might be, so to speak, painted by a painter or, uh, or captured in a poem. Uh, then to do that, we organize, we, we, we start from a set of sort of three really broad categories. We call it starting from theatricality, authenticity, and uh, and the idea is if you're trying to sort of, you know, codify those sort of, experiences that places are evincing start from uh, the, the style of uh, interaction that it promotes. That's the theatricality dimension, a certain way of 
appearing to other people or, um, or, or a, a way of seeing and being seen is one way to, to think about it. That's sort of like a Goffman dimension. You might think of it as a Goffman style dimension. And the idea is that places will advance a certain vision of how to present yourself to others and, and, and how they are to look back at you. And then we try to then articulate uh, five variants of, of theatricality that you could find. And they are things like being glamorous, you know, being very fashionable, uh, wearing your finest uh, so other people see you as such. But it could also be transgressive. You know, dressing and presenting yourself in a way that goes against conventions or being very formal, following a, a typical, sorry about that, following typical conventions of dress and attire. Call from Anne Wilshay. So phone is ringing. I don't really know how to stop it. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so, so there's some forms of uh, conventionality that you might, uh, theatricality that would be involved in a scene. Uh like the glamorousness and transgressiveness and formality. We the one we talk about neighborliness, sort of presenting yourself in a, for, in a warm and uh, op- a kind of a hospitable way. And and if you think about you know images of street life that we're all familiar familiar with, you can I think call to mind places that evoke all of those. You know the glamorous part of the city, the transgressive part of the city, uh, and all the rest. Um, so. Those are the theatricality dimensions. We also talk about what we call the authenticity dimensions of a city. Those have to do with identity, like who, uh, who a, a person uh, understands understands themselves to be uh, for real. So it's about who you really are or what it means to be a fake version of something. And again, cities, places will evoke different versions of that. Um, so, for example... Uh, and there's various grounds of authenticity that uh, one might appeal to. One could be uh, uh, a local authenticity, that the real comes from uh, having been rooted in a place for a very long time. Uh, another source of authenticity uh, would be uh, ethnic authenticity. There's an ethnic tradition which has its own ways of doing things, and being less than authentic is to imp- is to impose something from the outside upon that. And so we talk about, again, various forms of authenticity. And in inauthenticity, for example, there's corporate authenticity is one of the dimensions of authenticity that we talk about. Uh, corporateness, it can be a source of authenticity in the sense of wanting to have the most real Gucci bag that one you can find, or it can be a classic image of inauthenticity. And again, you can call to mind images of cities and neighborhoods and street life that evoke all of those things, you know, a place that presents itself as being very locally authentic, uh, a place to find ethnic authenticity or to to get uh, away from corporate uh, inauthenticity or towards it. And the last major dimension that we talk about is legitimacy, which is, as we know from sociology, about bases of authority and understanding of what is the right or wrong way to act. And again, our idea is that scenes will evoke different versions of what is legitimate and what is not. Uh, that legitimacy could come from tradition. And we could see that, for instance, in uh, a Catholic church being at the center of a community uh, or or uh, ballet being performed in the traditional way. Uh, another source of legitimacy, of course, from Weber is charisma. And again, there's a, a certain notion of that kind of legitimacy embedded in many parts of cities from you know sports teams to star performers 
of various kinds, uh, and not to mention utilitarian legitimacy, the idea that the right way to live is to be uh, forward thinking and efficient and uh, and and often oriented towards monetary success. And we find that in certain, let's say, the financial districts of various cities. Those are just, again, some of the another one we talk about is self-expressive legitimacy, that the right way to live is to be creative and express yourself in all that you do. And other parts of cities will evoke that notion of legitimacy. So. There's various dimensions there. Uh, they appeal to traditions in social theory, in aesthetics, in philosophy, in literature. And if you take some combination of theatricality, legitimacy, and authenticity, our, our major point is that you can use those dimensions to do a pretty good job of pinpointing what that scene means as a configuration of all of them. Thank you, Dan. And I'm, I'm mistaken to think that it's just quantitative to qualitative or qualitative to quantitative because what, what it's really about then is to dig deeper and to understand the essence of any given scene uh, through, those, through all of those uh, major factors, major dimensions. And, and just to add to that, what, sorry, one thing you said there is we've had collaborators and students use those for qualitative research. And Terry could probably rattle off four or five of them. And they've used it in very innovative ways, from ethnographic work to visual uh, sociology, you know, taking photographs of street life and trying to codify them across the dimensions. But it is right to say that, I mean, our book is has a lot of quantitative <laughs> dimensions to it. So I I'd understand why you why you'd say that. But we also do ourselves a fair amount of uh, some variant of ethnography and case studies. And we try to bring these dimensions in as well. Yeah, we have about a hundred little boxes just for the reader who hasn't seen the book of uh, little cases, unusual, deviant, deviant or extreme versions of a particular scene or combinations of scenes. And then how we combine the dimensions adds more subtlety. So, for instance, we take charisma and we look at that across different and we, we correlate the, the charisma dimension with the other, some of the other dimensions and find, for instance, that. That L.A. is the most is in in L.A. Glamour is charismatic. In L.A. Glamour, sorry, in Chicago, glamour is not charismatic. It's negatively weighted. Uh, whereas in Chicago, neighborliness and um, localism are positively weighted in manner in a manner that they are not in Los Angeles or or New York. So these are ways of classifying entire cities or neighborhoods, zip codes, um, um, in ways that the dimensions combine. You, we can also see that these are minimally related to income. So these are not all spurious expressions. In that, that would be a strong reading of Maslow or Engelhardt, that you can only think about aesthetics after you're rich. On the contrary, I live in Bronzeville, a low-income African-American neighborhood. What kids care about is writing an original song, making a, a video. Even the gangs are fighting each other here through their videos. Uh, and so the whole symbolism of the video has replaced the personal aggrandizement of um, turf in that way. or it's, it's claimed it through the videos in ways that video and YouTube ratings have become a new, a new metric for gangs to, to, to rank themselves against one, one another. So in that sense, the, the aesthetics, even in the gang, can be unrelated to income as we find empirically when we classify neighborhoods 
in terms of rent uh, and they, which they pay and, and so forth. Um, we could also say in the Scenescapes book, we generally focus on introducing the concept of scene to social scientists. So it, it'll be used in a serious, it can be added to the social science repertoire ideally, along with race, class, gender, and national origin, and, and, and the like. But, but the dependent variables that we choose are not original to us. We've used standard things that lots of other people have classically used, changes in rent, uh, where people move, where they move away from by age cohort and the like, patents um, for inventions as the part of the creative city, creative class kind of idea, where in which neighborhoods and which cities are, do we find more of these patents, more income, where are people moving to, moving away from, uh, <laughs> uh, where's the rent going up or down and the like, gentrification. So we're dealing with classic sociological themes, but we're showing that when we use the classical explanations of those, of those, of those various phenomena, then we add our scenes dimensions. Wow. We're often getting a dramatic improvement. So economic growth, total jobs across all 30, 30 plus thousand zip codes in the entire U S is most powerfully explained by the number of artists in that zip code which is not what you read in the Wall Street Journal or, or uh, Financial Times or, or whatever. Uh, rather, we've got, and then we add self-expression uh, and, and some other scenes dimensions, and they add a lot more than crime, population size, or cost of living, which are the standard kinds of things you read about in, in, in explaining job growth. So People and jobs are responding to these, but the social then mayors are mayors are leaders. Social scientists need to catch up with the mayors, the citizens, and the economy. Yes, and uh, another dimension of this whole uh, of this uh, whole scenescape is how fast uh, society is moving. Earlier on, Terry, you were talking about China and other um, and other countries that uh, have changed dramatically. Uh, from a very rural uh, sort of uh, setting to more urban. Can you tell me uh, about how research and how social scientists can keep up with the dramatic changes that are taking place? One of our Chinese team collaborators is at Wuhan, and they did a survey of 80,000 persons uh, about a year ago, and that was featured at the, at the Beijing meeting um, just a few weeks ago. Uh, we're now in the middle of analyzing that. I had a student who did a degree here uh, from China. She's Chinese. She then went back and worked with the other collaborators who've done this survey. And she now is a Ph.D. candidate with Dan Silver in Toronto. So that illustrates the way we're linking Toronto, Chicago and China. And we're actively building on the, the top people we can find within within each of the countries that we're collaborating with, which includes Spain, France initially. Uh, where we, we consulted for three years with the mayor of Paris, two years with the mayor of Seoul, but then also Poland, um, <coughs> um, Canada with Dan, uh, U.S., Korea, China, and um, uh, J Japan. So in this way, we've got, we've got active collaborators in each of these countries, and they really are the, are the subtle leaders that, that help us be sensitive to the, to the details that we that we can we can incorporate into more general theories when and we can compare 
quantitatively or qualitatively how these differ in the kinds of scenes which we find in Poland when they're reacting to communism and trying to reestablish civic groups, or in China where they're trying to build up the role of artists in the consumption sector, where they're building they're building new cities of three million, five million. Beijing and Shanghai are more than four times as big as New York. That is, the scale of this stuff is is phenomenal, and they're building some of this self-consciously with scenes ideas growing growing out of our consultations with them. Dan, uh, do you have anything to contribute to um, this conversation about uh, about how, how we can keep up with the dramatic changes that are taking place and maybe projecting future uh, movement of people into the cities or into rural areas? I think one thing that was sort of implicit in what Terry was saying, too, is sort of keeping your keeping our ears out and connections with people closer to the ground and where the action is happening. I mean, one thing uh, that we have been doing, both of us, is trying to collaborate with uh, civic groups and city policy people, you know, from city staff up through mayor's offices. Uh, and when you do that, you, you know, you're in touch with what what the problems they are actually facing. And you hear about it, you know, from, right, right, right from right there. And, and a lot of times they're. Uh, noticing things uh, because they're dealing with them uh, well before it makes their its way into any social science journal. So, you know, just being at those tables, being open to participating in those conversations, I think that opens you up to being uh, ready to see stuff that, that's happening before before um, it's maybe codified in the typical way uh, it, it would be for, for in a social science context. Yeah, Dan and I have both been actively involved before we started this book. We've been actively involved in our neighborhoods and our cities. I, I sit on lots of boards of low-income African-American groups concerned with economic development, with, with uh, security, with the neighborhood generally and how it relates to the city as a whole. We developed a, a bid to, to compete for the location of the Amazon second headquarters, etc., uh, at the same time, Dan, Dan, Dan has done all kinds of things in Toronto as well. So these these have informed our theorizing in a much more practical way than many of our many of our students who who unfortunately may not have. Uh, I, I won't say our students, other people's <laughs> students who don't have that kind of uh, haven't developed uh, a concern for for building those kinds of practical specific linkages but which then help us to articulate where and why do they work, that what are the processes that drive scenes, and how do they, how did, why do they generate increased income or migration, what attracts people, and then, then playing off the, the, the scale of the zip code versus the, the cluster of zip codes that are immediately adjacent to one another versus going two or three further out, and then that idea of catchment area from geography gets linked with the specific uh, dimensions and processes which we can identify. So, for instance, the Veblen-esque or Bourdieu idea of, of uh, cons conspicuous consumption is there for some people some of the time, but it's, it's, it's by no means enough. It's only one of many, many things which we, which we model and assess in terms of how, of how they're working. 
and then your definition, uh, the definition that you use for gentrification, I found that to be quite unique. Too often uh, do I think of gentrification of uh, as being whiteifying a neighborhood, but uh, the definition that was used in, in this book was something along the lines of uh, the rich or the active taking away from the poor uh, and or passive, uh, taking away cheap rent from the passive. Could you speak a little bit more on that, Terry or, or Dan? Dan, you want to um... uh, about gentrification in general? I mean, yeah, I mean that's obviously a much discussed topic, and uh, we have some things to, I think, contribute to that conversation in the book. I mean, w- one of them is we try to uh, try to point out that uh, contrary to many of the sort of ways that it, people talk about it, it's it's not a sort of automatic process, like a one-track kind of thing where you're, uh, you know, once you are on the road uh, towards it, it's inevitable. You, there's a lot of variant variant forms that go on. There's many ways that people uh, will, uh, local people will sense that it's happening now, that it's become such a part of the discourse and recognize it and work against it. And often, often those um, clashes take place at the level of the scene. I think that is sort of the main thing that we try to contribute, that you have, this isn't a chapter of our book, uh, which is on scenes and politics. And we should just maybe just take a step back and just lay out the, a bit about this, of the structure of the book. Like Carrie said, we have, you know, our outcome variables, to use the quantitative language, are you know, conventional ones of social science. And what we try to do is, after we sort of lay out the theory of scenes, have a chapter on economics, so how the character of the scene will contribute to economic growth in various ways, one on residential patterns, so how it drives population movements, and then one on politics. And gentrification, one we talk about in the context of politics, for the most part. Uh, What does that mean to talk about it in terms of politics? It means that the character of the place becomes uh, a a target for controversy. People fight about it. Uh, Some people have are attracted to one version of the way a place you know, looks to them and the vision of life it uh, presents to them. Uh, and they move there and other people may not like it. And they may want to say to those new people, no, this is not your scene. You are not welcome here. Uh, and you have various fights that go along with that. Let me give you one example uh, from some of the research I've been doing in Toronto of a case study of a neighborhood in Toronto that was a real sort of flashpoint for controversies about gentrification called... Uh, uh, West Queen West. It was a neighborhood that was sort of a stereotypical kind of case. It uh, became one of the. Uh, uh, it was. Uh, it had uh, some old warehouses in it. It was near what had been uh, a more iconic art scene in the city in the past. Uh, it became a target for development. I moved into it. It had been and still is uh, a place where many uh, uh, Portuguese residents had lived for a long time. Uh, and, uh, as the, as the condo started to go up, uh, many of the arts groups who lived there started to not just accept what was happening, but try to organize. And what they did is on the one hand, utilize the fact that it had become, um, accepted knowledge inside city government that artist neighborhoods were really crucial to the city to try to leverage that, to get support from city government, uh, to get some concessions from the condo developers and the other. So that was a kind of use of their uh, aesthetic cachet 
for uh, political purposes, but they also did things at the level of art itself. So one of the ones I remember is, uh, and I we talk about in the book, uh, one of, concerned uh, one of the proposed condo developments called the Bohemian Embassy. And that title appealed to a very historic place in Toronto that was called the Bohemian Embassy, which was a place where you know, Joni Mitchell used to hang out in the 60s and 70s. And uh, it was the name of the new condo. and It was appealing to the Bohemian cachet of the place. Well, what and it had this picture of this, you know, elegantly dressed uh, woman uh, sipping wine with a rose in her mouth or something like that. Uh, and it was supposed to be an attractive vision of the kind of scene you would be able to be a part of if you move there. And what this artist did is make a projection based on that, project it onto the onto the uh, construction site and uh, have, you know, a model looking just like that woman. But every 10 minutes or so, she would just vomit everywhere. And and that was, you know, a way of turning the potential gentrification of the of the place into itself uh, uh, an artistic topic and to make the changing scene of which it was a part like a topic for both cultural controversy and political controversy. So anyway, that's just one example. And we sort of think about and go through many others to try to show that there just isn't one single meaning to this. It's a contested thing that's up for grabs. And the cultural meaning of the place is central to many of these uh, controversies. And in the case of Toronto, two successive mayors took these issues fairly actively and, and debated over them. So these are not things which are just cool outsiders, but uh, uh, concerns, but, but which are actively fought over and are changing. <coughs> but, but a general point implicit in all of this is that gentrification is not an automatic, narrow, purely economic, rich versus poor, black, white versus white process. That is the meaning of what is what is new and what is what is interesting or desirable or not is 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 open to controversy but open to dramatic relabeling or reframing in Goffmanesque terms and this goes on all the time and to to think of it and to articulate some of the components of this rather than seeing it as one fixed process we need more subtle dimensions to analyze and interpret the complexities like those that we've been talking about with these 15 dimensions in order to to understand what's going on in as complicated a multidimensional process as gentrification which means which means and is very different things in different locations yes and uh something that i continue to hear a theme of this is understanding uh one's surroundings uh as more than just uh face value understanding them more deeply and understanding how they interact uh, the interaction that is uh, reciprocal between the people residing in those areas and the architecture that exists within these different scenescapes uh whether it be uh the different businesses like uh, starbucks which i believe uh is mentioned uh in this book um but also uh, the makeup of the of the population that reside in these neighborhoods. We're, we have just a quick footnote. We have in progress a new book called Latin Scenes, where where we found that cafes have been declining over the whole twentieth century in Paris and in France, and there are only about something like seven or eight hundred cafes in Paris now. There may be five hundred in Chicago, and. 10 years ago, that, that te- sorry, 20 years ago, that's about what it was in Seoul. Today, there are 15,000 cafes in Seoul alone. And what they are, what their meaning is, and then, 
And then only a tiny proportion of them are Starbucks. In, in China, by contrast, they have huge numbers of cafes, but, but Starbucks is about 40%. So Starbucks plays a major, a, a, a practically negligible role in Seoul. So these are very differentiated, interesting meanings which people bring to them. So the, and the, 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 the Koreans are much more inventive than Starbucks or the or the 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 rest of the world, they have they have cafes with sheep, with cats. People come and pat the sheep while they're having having a drink. Uh, and forty percent, they've done surveys, which we can't find any analog in the U.S. Forty percent of the of the citizens who are asked why are they why are they in the cafe, they're saying they want to talk to people. They're not sitting there alone with a with a computer. Uh, and so, in that sense, aspects. That the French say, this is why we no longer have ca- have cafes because nobody talks to each other anymore. People are just trying to make make more work. They're using their computers and the like. That's destroying the traditional cafe. If that were if that were a full explanation, we wouldn't find this massive growth in Seoul and in China. So yes. so the cross national part is wonderful in that it shows that aspects of of one ex- explanation often don't work. We have even. One of our, we published 10 books of which the Scenescapes is the, is the most comprehensive, but one just before this was called Can Tuckville Karaoke, with the idea that Western theories from Tuckville or from Jane Jacobs, Schumpeter, fall flat when we take them to Asia. We need to transform them and, and add elements of scenes and other, other, other components which have, been, which have been left out by, by others. Okay. And Terry, this makes me think of Ray Oldenburg and his book on great, uh, great good places. Is, is that something that you uh, borrowed from when continuing your research on uh, other places outside of the United States, and uh, not necessarily using the same social script when crossing um, national borders? Uh, we we borrow on lots of people and try to explicitly say that we we don't want to replace most of most past work. We're generally trying to complement what other people have done. So, for instance, scenes is is analogous. You could say to the cosmopolitan canopy uh, that that's been written about in, in in Philadelphia to the Philadelphia Barrio book to Japonica Brown Saracino's writing where she's stressing culture. She has a paper on four four lesbian subcultures and how they're how lesbians live very different lives in four different cities. All of these are leading in a similar direction in, in our minds and in, in that you can see elements of culture playing a more central role than many of the past interpretations are articulated. But we don't deny the importance of prices, markets, social mobility, racism, those are all there. And when we build in the, in the book, as you can see, we build our, our, our statistical models, including all those other variables as if they've been, if they've been part of a process in the past. Um, and then, and then see what does the scene add as well as identifying more precisely things which then this has gotten been gotten a lot of, a lot of applause recently. We, we've, when we try to see what is more egalitarian, we found this was Dan, Dan, and, and uh, Joseph Yee who worked worked with Dan. Dan's a martial artist. They found that martial arts, popular music, um, uh, evangelical churches were highly associated with. Why don't you, why don't you continue, Dan? Is, is it <laughs> such a nice point? So we had uh, 
a section in the book which builds off a paper that we did with with Joseph Yi, who teaches in Korea now. He went to the University of Chicago as well in political science. Um, uh, the paper is called God, Yoga, and Karate, which was in uh, the journalist's uh, Scientific Study of Religion. Uh, and and the chapter, the section of the book uh, was in the chapter on residential uh, make uh, populations, and it was about the question, is is America coming, coming apart? <laughs> and, the, and there's so much... Discussion now about uh, American culture becoming extremely divided along many, many different lines. Uh, and what we wanted to do was build some measures that would allow us to hopefully capture the culture divide that is also a place divide, uh, and but also to not necessarily stop there, but to look for different ways, different bridges across across uh, the, the divides. And, you know, our starting inspiration for this is this quote from, uh, and I can't remember who it was from, but, you know, it was about, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, from the almost the moment that America was founded, there was hand-wringing about it, you know, collapsing collapse. and falling apart and breaking up uh, into factions. So this sort of worry is as old as America itself. And so we're trying to, in a way, map the contemporary form of that, but also the the way the, the 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 commonalities across the divides. So to do that, we made a couple of measures. One was of New Age spirituality, with yoga studios being the core uh, indicator, but a few others. And then on the flip side, we had one of what we called New Conservative uh, religiosity, with various forms of evangelical churches being at the center. And both of these movements really grew up uh, uh, out of the 1960s and you know became really dominant. Are, are really uh, important. And um, we map those and we, we find that they really are separated from one another in the ways that you might expect uh, in, in terms of neighborhoods. And so, you know, the uh, that have fewer non-white residents uh, and much higher education, whereas the, the new line conservative uh, uh, evangelical churches are in general in located in places with uh, less education, but also m much more racially diverse. And there's relatively small amounts of overlap among them. Uh, so that's one vision of, of the divide. And, and uh, on the other hand, though, we built an index of what we call popular culture, which had things like, you know, McDonald's and Walmart and music uh, play venues and a few other items in it. And uh, and those kinds of things are found everywhere so there's you know some so elements of the the culture that are bro broadly shared but the more interesting one was like terry said martial arts and uh martial arts we found it comes closer to being like popular culture in that it cuts across these divides and we find them in both the new age uh, pro uh kind of progressive cultural areas and also in areas that uh have more of uh, uh, conservative evangelical churches in them. And that was a very interesting thing. And, you know, Joseph really helped us to think about that. But one of the interesting things about the martial arts is that they're right at the kind of intersection of uh, many of the major uh, cleavages in American culture. Uh, and they cross cut them. So they're not black or white. So and, and, and you'll find them in black neighborhoods and in, in white neighborhoods. Uh, and they're all a place where many, uh, many, many cross-racial interactions happen. They're also uh, not uh, not secular and they're not 
in, they're not Christian and they're not anti-Christian. They're just outside of that uh, for many people. So they don't sort of evoke the same kind of uh, uh, charged meanings that the, uh, the the New Age versus the, the, the evangelical spirituality would. Um, they're also not, neither, they're both, they have elements both of high culture and of popular culture. Uh, and so on and so on. So they're so they're right at this kind of intersection, which really allows them to sort of sort of uh, be taken up by by many people and be a, be a, be the be a, a kind of activity that transcends many of America's divides uh, and and provides a, a kind of point to con a contact. Uh, so uh, and then we will go on to say exactly how that happened, why that happened. It has to do with the history of the martial arts, how they entered into the into the United States, and they had a very different reception history uh, from yoga. As an example, yoga entered the United States primarily through Cambridge and Massachusetts, through people like William James, uh, and it, from the very beginning was part of the sort of educated uh, spiritual culture, and then it came through Berkeley and the Esalen Institute and New Age movements, and so it became very bound up with those movements and people, and has had a very hard time breaking out of that box, although there's efforts to do that. Uh, at the same, on, on the other hand, the martial arts came uh, in many ways through uh, GIs returning from from the from from uh, Korea and Japan, who brought it with them and circulated it around, and in many ways turned it into the kind of thing that would be uh, more uh, open and accessible to mainstream American culture. But then they also other people seized on other aspects of the martial arts and integrated it in many ways with uh, the, the, the new age practices as well. So they're, they're, it's a quite, I think, striking story, and it illuminates one of our sort of overall arching goals, which is, on the one hand, to be very sensitive to local differences, controversies, cleavages. On the other hand, to not stop there and look for points of commonality uh, among them. Excellent. That was a valuable piece. But of let me just let, let me add. Sorry, one brief extension uh, illustration of everything Dan just said. Namely, if we put these together and then correlate the 15 scenes dimensions with presidential voting in the U.S., we find that in every presidential election in the last 20 years, the the scenes that is starting roughly 20 years ago, the scenes dimensions did not differentiate much at all, in less than 0.1 correlation with presidential voting. In the last successive every single presidential election since, the the scenes dimensions have more and more strongly predicted presidential voting, with Trump being the most powerful in 2016. So we now find that these are these are much more sharply and specifically related to presidential voting by ward or by county uh, than than they were than they were in the past. And so these are not again not just things that we're making up. These are elements, and we have a paper on Trump suggesting that there is not one Trump base. Rather, there are many, many separate, differentiated, specific subgroups which have been angered for different reasons, but which have ended up supporting supporting uh, Trump as a political candidate. And this fits in with migration in, in that people may move to or away from a neighborhood which is more consistent with their general lifestyle and values, and that in turn links to their presidential voting. But we're, but in that sense, fragmentation is increasing, but it doesn't have to be only through conflict. It can be also through institutions which can join the, disper the, the various residents as we're pointing to policy implications, as Dan has illuminated, martial arts, certain kinds of churches, 
certain popular cultural institutions can join people in the same way that uh, that that political candidates may divide them. Just underline what Terry just said that uh, we have a graph in the book, chapter six, which just it's pretty dramatic, showing the zero correlation between the the scene dimensions and presidential voting, and then just spreading apart over over time. And our chart in the book only went up to 2012 and, and then we, we've extended it to 2016 and it just keeps going in the same direction. So it really does show this increasing overlap between culture and politics that we've been trying to document as well. Well, thank you uh, for your time today for this interview. Uh, unfortunately, we're um, all out of time, but one uh, final question that I always like to ask my authors is what are you working on now, Terry? What are you working on now, Dan? I mentioned the Latin scenes book. Uh, it's how the how the street was a more visible central entity from Socrates and Plato onward. Uh, Socrates was there in the agora competing with people selling oranges or tomatoes to others nearby. Uh, and but and in and in that sense, the scene uh, which is in at in, you know reincarnated in Athens today continues through Italy, France, Spain, through certain institutions like cafes, but also street demonstrations, such as we saw most visibly in the European Union conflicts between the Greek um, government employees, the strikes which they have had. And similarly, there have been things like that in Portugal and Spain uh, in ways. Second, that this style of politics has then come to Northern Europe the Scandinavian countries, the U.S., Canada, and even inside China, with Hong Kong having street demonstrations, the Arab Spring, the Cairo street demonstrations, those scenes led to the, the, the president withdrawing. Ukraine, similar thing happened. These are now, and, and Trump has in turn built on this, as have other populist leaders in Western Europe, uh, either with more conflict or with an effort to overcome those conflicts, as as with Macron in France. So we've got variations and combinations of these dimensions, which are quite different from just 10 or 20 years earlier in ways that our scenes, our scenes analysis has sensitized them, uh, sensitized us to them. And so the way that this initially came historically from the Latin countries, but as I mentioned, the cafes in in Asia these have now gone to cut and they, and they had no cafes in, in Asia 30, 40 years ago. These are, these are really a new, they see it as an American or a Western importation, but within the U S we didn't have cafes here either, except in Greenwich village in one or two places. So cafes are brand new in the U S and they come more from Latin culture. And so where and how these, these terms like Latin culture can be dis, disaggregated, decomposed and made more sense of, and then recombined helps us better see things happening instead of saying they're simply false consciousness or they don't fit what we've normally talked about, whether it came from Veblen or Bourdieu or whatever, that the, those older models need to be updated with the dramatic changes and, and eclectic, newly eclectic recombinations, which are going on around us today and even more for sure into the future. And Dan, what are you working on? Uh, well, I'm doing my sort of usual uh, mix of, moving between social theory and, and various uh, more focused 
studies. So in social theory, I'm I'm working. I'm very interested in, in Zimmel and resuscitating and articulating and thinking more about the value of Zimmel's ideas. So we've been doing a lot of with Zimmel because it's 2018 is the 100 year anniversary of his of his uh, of his death. So there's been various uh, you know, symposia and discussions and conferences um, around that. And we just had one here at University of Toronto. We had two during the International Sociological Association World Congress, which was also here in, in, in Toronto. So there's uh, some some publications and edited volumes and so on coming out of that, um, which I've been working on um, closer to these um, themes. Uh, I'm also one other theory topic I'm very interested in, which is sort of related to the theme of scenes, but in a tangential way. I'm very interested in um, the, how we um, visualize theoretical ideas. So I've been doing studies on the different kind of diagrams that people use to represent theoretical concepts or work through theoretical concepts and how the shape of the diagram um, uh, corresponds to and influences the shape of our thought. Um, but then now more on these things about arts and culture and so on. I've been doing um, um, research specifically on uh, public art policy, both, and that's a good example of something we talked about: work that comes out of a policy work with uh, civic organizations and collaborators here in Toronto. But we did a big comparative study of uh, public art policy in 30 countries, uh, cities, sorry, around the world, uh, and how the, um, the different policy ideas emerged in various places, spread and recombined and were reconfigured to different local adaptations. And it's also, I think, uh, we're, we're using new uh, analytical techniques like uh, topic modeling on the text, computational text analysis to trace this stuff out. And all that feeds together into uh, big collaborative projects here, which are really exciting between myself and other social scientists, uh, along with natural scientists from biology and also engineers and computer scientists, where we're trying to build a, um, a general theory of urban evolution. That obviously the things we're talking about today, but many other things as well. Um, so, so those are the, those are, those are some of the things. Excellent. Well, again, thank you to uh, both of you for uh, participating in this podcast today. And I look forward to reading uh, reading future works and inviting you back on the show again. Thank you. Thanks, Our much. pleasure.